Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin. Uh, I'm with my co-hosts today, Rob Hunt from California and Jim Marty. Uh, Jim, we're going to have to start giving you a nickname because every time we talk, you're in transit from somewhere to somewhere else. Uh, this time, I believe you're in transit over to uh, Red Rocks uh, Theater to see uh, Bob Weir tonight. How are you doing? Hey, uh, re- doing really good. It's a beautiful day here in Colorado. And as I like to say, ain't no cobweb on my shoe. It's what I call a grateful day. A grateful day is a show day. And yeah, we're on our way up to Red Rocks to see Bob Weir and the Wolf Brothers. And uh, looking forward to it. We're going to get there two or three hours ahead because it's GA. And I know right where I want us to sit on the stairs to get in, maybe be in the first five rows. Well, if you'd be so kind as to take a picture or two and send them over to Dan Humiston, our uh, always great leader and producer, so he can post them and uh, listeners can uh, feel just like they're there and you can give us a little review next week. So that's great. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm great, Larry. Uh, excited to be here to talk about uh, Grateful Dead and Canvas again. What do you got for us on tap for Grateful Dead today? What's our theme? What do we got going? Well, uh, as you know, there's a couple day lag from when we record to when we were actually uh, live, so I think we were going to talk about the uh, the 614 through 616 run at the Greek Theater in 1985 uh, from Berkeley, California, a terrific run that I think you were actually at and attended. But, uh, I did. But, you know, three great shows from 1985, an uh, epic kind of period of the Grateful Dead history coming out of the Frost Amphitheater shows in Stanford a few weeks earlier and going into kind of launching the East Coast Summer Tour was the last of the West Coast shows before they took off for the East. So uh, lots to talk about there and the merits of not just, you know, 1985 summer, but also the merits of seeing a show at the Berkeley, um, at the Greek Theater in Berkeley. Yep, there's a lot to talk about there as well. And we have a a very exciting guest with us today, Matt Abel, uh, who's got more titles than I can go through, but uh, he is a uh, good friend and an attorney from, a cannabis attorney from Michigan. In fact, he is the original cannabis counsel, and we will talk about that as well because because of Matt, none of the rest of us are, and uh, I found that out the business way too, so we can talk about that also, but uh, Matt, welcome to our show, we're happy to have you. Um, just starting off really fast, gentlemen, um, politically I guess it doesn't really matter where you come down on the question of vaccines, you can be for them, you can be against them, uh, but certainly one of the articles in the news these days is whether or not we can get everyone vaccinated in this country and we've seen states offer entries into lotteries and states offering the possibilities to win scholarships and and all sorts of stuff uh but it looks like washington state is uh finally taking a step in a direction that's going to play right into uh uh, the hands of this industry with a, a program called uh jabs for joints uh rob have you heard about this yeah, I did. I think it's interesting that, you know, for the first time, we're actually using cannabis as an enticement to get people to come in and get vaccinated. So it's uh, a little bit different where I've seen, you know, people offer, uh, you know, free beer before to do some things, but I've certainly never seen it where people are being offered, um, you know, free cannabis to come in and get vaccinated. So I've got to say that it, if it's, you know, the, the cannabis community that's resisting vaccination, this should certainly get, you know, a certain percentage of the population across the line to, to think about getting vaccinated if they're otherwise opposed. So, yeah, I'm all for it. Sounds like a great idea. Jim, what about you? Have you seen anything like that in Colorado? Well, our governor is doing $5 million lotteries for people to get vaccinated. And I understand both sides of the argument. On one side, it's like, hey, you wouldn't say you wouldn't want to get a measles shot, right? On the other hand, they say, well, it's not tested. I, you know, we might want to have a family. I'm a girl and, 
you know, child rearing years or child bearing years, I don't want to get the vaccine. So I understand both sides of the argument, but it seems like the vast majority of people, I'm going to a full capacity show tonight at Red Rocks. Well, I hear you, man. And what I find fascinating about this program is, I'm sure it's the same in every state, but I got very familiar with it in Illinois because we had to sit down with all of our clients and, and really read them all of the rules. You can't bring anything into a dispensary, you know, let alone anything that, you know, would be considered a drug in any form whatsoever, right? They're that heavily regulated. But according to this program, you actually are going to get vaccinated on site in the dispensary. And then the dispensary will be able to give you your joint because you can only get the joint during the visit while you get the vaccination. So how they managed to pull that off, I don't know. Uh, but I could see that being a, a logistical nightmare trying to pull off in Illinois with all the hoops we would have to jump through. But, uh, you know, hey, whatever works, if it gets people in there to get their vaccinations, that's great. If it drums up more business for the industry, even better. If only you could smoke it while you were waiting in line. Ah, piping in our guest, Matt Abel. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. And you know what? With that, because he's uh, he's got great opinions and let's work him into the conversation. Our guest today is Matt Abel. Uh, Matt is the uh, current but not for long executive director of Michigan Normal. He is a current but not for long board member of the International Cannabis Association. Uh, he is a attorney in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, and he and my co-host Jim Marty uh, were presenters at the very first cannabis conference I ever went to in Seattle, Washington in November of uh, 2013, I want to say. Um, and it was my first time uh, recognizing there was anything in the industry. In fact, Dan Humiston was there with me. He and I were there together uh, with a third guy who uh, was going to uh, do some work with us. Yes, um, Matt Abel and I go back many years, uh, I guess it's dog years in mar the marijuana world, back to 2013. Sure. But Matt, uh, give us an update on, uh, are we getting adult use in Michigan now? What's going on in Detroit? Oh, yeah, we have adult use in the state, um, and we have some retail stores in the suburbs, some of them, but uh, a lot of communities are slow to opt in. And then the city of Detroit has a pending federal lawsuit against their ordinance. The judge should rule in, in another week or two. Um, so we'll be hearing something about that. Someone is uh, challenging their legacy program that gives half the licenses to people who have lived in the city for 30 years or so, generally. So uh, we'll see how that comes out. That's going to be interesting because Detroit had 300 dispensaries before um, all this uh, regulation went through, and now they're limiting it to 75. We have 75 medical. And then uh, for recreational, um, half of there's still only going to be 75, but half of them are going to be these legacy applicants, and the other half will be the existing ones. So... Unless you're a legacy or an existing facility, it's going to be really tough to get a retail store in Detroit. Um, meanwhile, there's some other cities. We're working on a ballot initiative in Pontiac that would uh, open that up to recreational. Uh, they passed a medical initiative and still have yet to implement it. Not a single place is open there. So it's a struggle everywhere. Michigan has over 1,700 municipalities. Only about 100 have opted in at all to recreational but it's coming along slowly wow i didn't realize only 100 that that's that's not a lot but i guess if you get the right ones then you're in good shape huh 
Well, and a few of them have no limit on the number of either all facilities or uh, at least growing and processing. So um, it's interesting to see how some of the places are developing that uh, that have no limits at all. And um, it's uh, they're starting to see some economic vitality come of it. So some of the naysayers, I think, are going to come around, especially as the tax dollars continue to roll in and increase um, in this. So uh, we'll see. I have, uh, well, and Michigan's a big agricultural state. And so we have wine growing regions. And lately we've been talking about uh, canicultural areas like viticultural areas where um, you could designate uh, product from that region. And it has to be kind of a, uh, not unique, but particular soil structure and climate and topography so that everything from that region really grows under the same conditions. Um, and we have the Great Lakes here. We're finding there's a, a lake effect of about 10 miles in from the lake where the, the climate's more moderate in the fall um, in that 10 mile stretch by maybe 10 degrees. So this would be like to call something champagne, it has to be from Champagne, France? Just like that, right. So okay. it has to be grown in the ground, at least flowering. Um, and it has to, uh, the name of the region has to have some meaning geographically there. You know, you can name it after a person from that area if you wanted to. But, um, I mean, you've got Napa, Humboldt, Mendocino, um, here we've got the thumb area, which is a big beet, sugar beet growing area where the soil's rich and dark. Um, and an area just around from the thumb, my, my partner, my law partner, Tom Levine, calls the knuckle. Um, so we have some clients developing some property there for outdoor growing. Um, but Michigan's a, a large state, too. It's a five-hour drive from Detroit to the Mackinac Bridge and another hour across the Upper Peninsula. And so um, the, uh, the, the climate changes. The, it's much more temperate down in the south where I am than up far north. Leave it to me to talk farming. <laughs> so, so Matt, I've always thought of Michigan and the California market being really analogous in so many ways that both you have, you know, kind of home determination from a municipal level where, um, you know, both states had a, a pretty robust, call it, um, gray market that uh, existed for a long time. And then putting away that gray market in favor of a legalized adult use market has taken some time. Uh, both states had a very robust, um, you know, cultivation culture. So they are producer states as well as being um, consumer states, and uh, they've also given you know the reins to the municipalities to make determinations. So I'm really not surprised to hear you say this whole Appalachian idea is coming out of Michigan as well, because it closely tracks, as you said, to what we're seeing in the northern counties of California, uh, in the Emerald Triangle, in Grass Valley, and some of the other you know kind of northern counties. Uh, uh, everywhere from Lake to Humboldt to Mendocino to Shasta to um, uh, to uh, a couple of the others, you know, that all want this designation. Do you think that um, do you think the consumer is really going to notice a difference, and do you think they're going to make buying decisions based on the terroir or based on an Appalachian? Well, if the marketers do their job, they will. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know if it'll get to the point where a wine expert can taste some wine 
and tell you where it came from, right? Um, I don't know if we'll ever get to that sophistication in the cannabis market, but as the price of indoor comes down, outdoor, it's, I mean, outdoor growing is going to force the price down. So eventually, I think that uh, outdoor is probably going to be the lion's share of the market. And then it'll be important to differentiate and to build a brand. And that may assist in, in doing that. So we have uh, licensed micro businesses here in Michigan that are 150 plants. It's interesting, just earlier this week, the state put out a bulletin saying, not in the medical licenses, but in the recreational adult use, pardon me, licenses, that the plant count um, only applies to plants that are tagged, that is, that are larger than eight inches tall or eight inches in diameter, so that you can have an unlimited number of uh, clones or veg as long as they're below eight inches, where that doesn't apply um, on the adult, on the medical side, excuse me. So um, that allows this micro business that would have 150 plants to more rapidly turn it, well, it allows them all to more rapidly turn them over. Um, I don't know if you can keep a plant eight inches tall or eight inches in diameter. They're really little nugs, you know. Uh, we have uh, we have the same thing in Illinois. We only have home grow for medical, but you can have five flowering plants and an unlimited number. But ours is five inches, so definitely, yeah. You know, I, I don't know how long you can keep a five inch plant around, but I guess for as long as you can. Is is the Michigan regions? I mean, I, as a guy who lives in the Midwest, I I can you know say I've I've heard of the Emerald Triangle, um, you know, in some of these other areas that Rob was talking about. I can't say that about the state of Michigan. I mean, I know the state of Michigan. I went to school in Ann Arbor. In fact, maybe we'll have time to talk about the hash bash. But, you know, to me, I don't – and if you talk about the Upper Peninsula, sure, I know that. I know Mackinac. But I don't know anything about those regions in terms of them being any more suitable for growing marijuana than anywhere else. So in order to, to do this kind of thing, how do you educate the consumer to, you know, to start looking at Michigan regions – like they would California regions? Well, we'd have to analyze it and figure out what would be appropriate. It's not like you just make up regions. You determine what they are based on the characteristics there on the ground. And uh, maybe, Larry, have you heard of Pinconning Paralyzer? Um, I have not. So Pinconning is a village or a city in Michigan. It's uh, near the Thumb. So it's uh, around that area, I guess, looking at it from your perspective. <laughs> anyway, it's been a well-known strain for a long time here. And so something like that could end up being a, a brand name. The biggest problem is it's not like people have been out front growing these strains and are willing to brag about it. Um, now maybe they'll come out of the closet and say, yeah, I've been growing northern lights here outdoors in this particular place um, for generations or, you know, years anyway. But I think the strains can be developed based on what's appropriate, what grows well there, what the climate is like, what the soil is like, and then you find strains that are appropriate and develop them as heirlooms. I mean, the grapes that were that are grown in California 
are many of them imported from different places. You get vines transplanted from Italy or Spain or France um, or Argentina, something like that. And uh, I like us. I'm not really a farmer, although I did go to high school in Vermont. So, yeah, that's just. I think it's interesting stuff, and it goes to geography and some history and. There is a lot of gray market, and I think that'll always continue, really. I think the challenge for the multi-state operators and the large producers is to produce a quality product at a reasonable price. And if they can do that, that the gray market will naturally subside. Uh, people aren't making gray market beer. Uh, they might make a little moonshine here and there, but really, when was the last time you went to a party and somebody pulled out a bottle of moonshine. Yeah, but, but, but there's a huge difference. I mean, if you think about the alcohol industry, they're not subservient to 280E. So when you don't have that tax restriction placed on you, I mean, the large-scale cannabis cultivators on the legal side can produce cannabis at significantly lower cost than anyone can in the, legal, in the illegal side, just based on economies of scale. But they can't give it to the consumers at a lower cost because there's 20 different people along the way that have got their hands in their pockets, whether it's forcing, you know, for uh, laboratory testing or whether it's, you know, different layers of taxation on every part of the supply chain or whether it's 280E at a federal level or whether, you know, like plus, plus, plus just filing you know, for your license every year. It's impossible at that point to compete against the, um, the illicit growers that don't pay tax to anyone. So if you look at, you know, the alcohol industry and say, okay, you know, if you actually had an illegal vineyard, could you produce wine less expensively? The answer is probably yes there as well. You're just much more of a, um, much more of a, a, an open um, group to come after. So in canvas, it's a lot tougher. So the, I don't know if it's a question of quality and price. It's a question of, you know, can you actually give um, the, the cannabis cultivators a better chance at success? by giving them the ability to, to wipe out or, you know, sort of extinguish the illicit market first before you start putting all sorts of punitive taxes on them. I think you're absolutely right, Robert. And I completely support elimination of 280E. That's really going to be a game changer in, in many ways. And, you know, that leads me to talk and think about the banking bill. I, I had a, a Michigan congressman, uh, Andy Levin, is supporting the, the banking bill and, and wanted you know, it was doing a fundraiser and trying to pitch it to the community, and most of the people on the Zoom were just happy about it that he was supporting that. And I said, you know, my concern is that's going to be the end of it, that that helps the big big guys, and it still doesn't help anybody who can't get a, a job because of pre-employment drug screening where the employer says it's a Schedule 1. It doesn't help anybody in... Um, uh, with transportation and, and over-the-road truckers, driver's licenses. It doesn't help anybody with a medical issue where the doctor's cutting them off because they're street drugs and um, all of that. So, you know, I'm not against the banking bill, but I'm not going to throw a whole lot of effort and you know into that um, just because. And even though it would benefit, you know, as a lawyer who does licensing of cannabis businesses, on behalf of myself and the other four lawyers at our firm, you know, we uh, definitely want to help our clients succeed in this business. But, um, you know, we also want to see the government get off our backs. And but the banking bill is very small uh, solace for most people. And 
frankly, the people in the industry are already making some money. I know it's a, a pain um, and a nuisance. And, you know, they ought to, instead of doing that, put all their effort be, behind getting it off Schedule 1 that w we all could support. So I'll get off my soapbox about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Matt, let me, let me kind of take this and, you know, just spin it over a little bit into, you know, other things you've done in, in the cannabis industry. And I mentioned this part of your introduction, but I, I think that it's a story worth telling because it, it is, uh, it is, it is uh, very well known and, and you guys did a good job with it. You, your, your law firm, you guys are the original cannabis council <laughs> right and, and you own that name. Yes. Right. We do. And, is, uh, since 1999, it's registered trademark the whole shooting match and and like i said i know this because once when i was uh writing an article for a uh, publication i think for one of these uh conference groups uh they decided that my little monthly column would be called advice from cannabis council and the next thing i knew boy oh boy i got a cease and desist letter from matt abel like nobody's business have to protect the mark, you know? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I sent it off to Dan Humiston, and I said, we better get a new name right away. <laughs> well, I'm glad we didn't have to fight over that. Yeah, we no. were on the, uh, what do they call it, the provisional registry for um, uh, maybe five years, and then uh, were able to document that we had used it in commerce for a long time at the time when we applied for it. I had no idea that you couldn't file a descriptive mark generally or anything like that. Right. Right. Yeah, that's why I was always so surprised. But, hey, you know, you guys got it and you use it. And, you know, I, I can't think of many law firms in the country that, that could better live up to the uh, the title than yours. So, you know, that's great for you. How are things with the business? You guys busy in Detroit these days? Yeah, we're plenty busy. Uh, we do licensing for clients throughout the state. There are always city council meetings going on and planning commission meetings. Uh, there's real estate transactions. Um, and some there's some litigation over contracts and real estate and partnerships, whatever. But uh, for the most part, it's, it's humming along. We have really the biggest issue is finding a location where the municipality will let you do what you want to do. And um, it surprises me a little that more places haven't really just jumped on board. I'd like to take a rural township in Michigan your standard by the book township is six miles by six miles. So you have 36 square miles um, within a township. And um, I could see taking the outer two mile ring and making that all cultivation and the next mile in making that processing. And then inside of that, you have your, I think, uh, three by three, nine square mile village where people live and you have your consumption lounges and it could be a walkable community um, and planned where all the industries on the outskirts of town and then just use those revenues to develop. I mean, I think it would become a tourism location. People would go there just to buy hats and T-shirts, much less the cannabis. By the way, I think you're the first guest we've had where all three of us know you. And I think it's surprising we may have all met you at the same time. Because if I go back to, I think Warren Edson introduced us by phone. But the first time we met was at that Seattle, it was just south of Seattle for the MJ Business Conference. I want to say it was actually, it was to, uh, November of 2013. I spoke at that conference as well. 
So uh, I remember sitting with you in, in the major you know, room, which at that time, I think there was only 800 people in attendance, but, uh, but we were told to look each other up prior to that event from, uh, from Warren in Georgia. So very cool that all of us you know, kind of all, all came together at that same time. But when I was introduced to you back then, you were already known as you know, one of the sort of the OGs of the cannabis um, legal industry. You know, and there was only a handful of guys out there that I, that I knew like that, you know, like Mike Cutler and Dick Evans kind of were in that ilk. And, you know, I gave Warren sort of that credit and a few of the other Colorado guys like, you know, Sean McAllister that was doing a lot of work and, um, you know, a couple of people in, in Los Angeles. But, you know, from the time that you started off in this industry to, you know, kind of where you are now, you've seen absolutely everything where I think a lot of your practice was probably more on the criminal side and now has evolved much more on the licensing side. Did you ever expect, you know, kind of um, with the advocacy work that you did over the last 20 years to be at the moment in time that we are today? Well, I sure didn't anticipate it. I mean, I always figured we would make it legal sooner or later, but uh, it seems like things are uh, going fast and slow at the same time. It's kind of frustrating because there is a lot of change, a lot of small change, and especially every day. You know, it used to be I could keep up on the email um, and the different newsletters, and there were only a few of them, and you could read everything, and oh, there weren't that many stories. You were, you know, I was scrubbing for stories that talked about marijuana or cannabis, and now it's like drinking from a fire hose, you know. It's, it's incredible, all the stuff. You can't possibly read and keep up on everything that's happening between, you know, stocks mergers and acquisitions, multi-state operators, uh, social equity issues, um, and everything else going on, not to mention the day-to-day grind of completing an application, getting it filed, going through the the walkthrough with the state and getting the client the license. So um, I didn't really know what to think or expect. I really just follow my heart. I fought cannabis cases as a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, I mean, I've tried murder, rape, and robbery cases as well, and I, I really don't like going to court. I don't like putting on a suit and tie and arguing with judges and prosecutors. It's not a lot of fun. And um, especially when you're a defense attorney, you're always playing defense and making excuses and trying to you know, cover stuff that's already happened. And um, now we can actually be creative and do some positive work. So I'm happy that once we were able to legalize it, the criminal defense practice was reduced, where all five of us at one point were doing criminal defense work, and now there's only one of us. And, you know, it all goes to Sean. Plus, he's doing a lot of licensing work as well and litigation. So... um, Partly there's not as much criminal work, but also partly there are now 800 lawyers who are members of the State Bar of Michigan Cannabis Law Section, and a couple hundred of them do criminal defense work. So there's more competition. And there's a lot of competition in the licensing field as well, from small guys like us and even solo practitioners to the big boys, the silk stocking law firms with hundreds of lawyers now all have some people doing cannabis work, whether it's mergers and acquisitions or zoning or some kind of litigation or all of that stuff. Um, So 
you know, I had a dream maybe maybe one of those big firms would you know give me a million dollar uh, uh, bonus to come work for them, but that hasn't happened. So. Well, so this is the classic case of a guy who was a attorney with, you know, background in a practice in cannabis who dived into a group like Normal, which we haven't really talked about a lot yet, but you were the executive director, you still are of Michigan Normal. And you know, you're like the dog that you're like the dog that chased the car and caught it, right? You're you Michigan Normal, it's legal in Michigan now. You did a good job, but now like you say, on the attorney side, you're increasing your competition. So it I guess that kind of comes with the territory. How but but how do you feel about this? I mean you really, you were there, you oversaw normal during this transition from a black market to a legal market. Well, it's, it was pretty exciting and it didn't happen overnight. I mean, we, I was involved in the PRA 2000, the personal responsibility amendment that never made the ballot. And, um, in 2008, we had uh, repeal today. Um, and 2012, we tried repeal today. And 2016, we had MI legalized, and uh, actually there were two two separate years for MI legalized. 2018 finally got on the ballot, passed, and um, I was lucky enough to be on the drafting committee for the legalization. And it was a bit of a horse trade. We didn't get everything we wanted, but there was some stuff that that worked out there. Um, they wanted secure transporters to also be able to care to own the product and to be distributors and wholesalers. And we put the kibosh on that. That was basically the Michigan beer and wine wholesalers who are a very powerful lobby uh, trying to corner the market on that too. So that didn't happen. Well, you're, you're, you're a long way from John Sinclair, huh? Uh, Yes. Although John will be receiving a, a lifetime achievement or recognition award from the state bar of Michigan cannabis law section at our conference at Soaring Eagle Casino in Mount Pleasant in September. Larry, you ought to come over for that. It should be a lot of fun. I will. I have uh, been petitioning the state bar to erect a Michigan legal milestone. There are 40 or so of those around the state, and this would uh, uh, memorialize the the movement from of the 50 years from the a uh, concert to free John Sinclair at Chrysler Arena on the U of M campus uh, through legalization, which is really the same trajectory of work by a lot of different people. And the state bar cannabis law section has endorsed it. And it hasn't exactly, you know, turned on a lot of people at the very conservative state bar. Um, they seem to be maybe slow pedaling a little bit, but John's going to be 80 this year, and we'd like to do it while he's still in in great shape. Um, And I think also, you know, I always remind people that the hash bash is not a party and a celebration. It's a a protest that when the laws got thrown out through Sinclair's case, uh, the legislature passed new laws. And April 1st was the day the new laws took effect. And that was the point of the protest on April 1st originally to protest the new laws. It was legal to smoke weed yesterday. God damn it, you're not taking that away from us. And and, that, and so I'd like to erect this legal milestone at the Diag in Ann Arbor. My second choice would be in front of Chrysler Arena, which is the basketball arena where the concert occurred. Have you talked to anybody at the university about it? 
Um, not yet, but one of the members of our council is an assistant city attorney in Ann Arbor. And so he is going to help us with that. Um, we have to get the bar to at least put it on, you know, put it in the, in the hopper. Yeah, so uh, let's jump into the Grateful Dead here for a little bit. And obviously, you know, Jim, you go and see uh, Bob Weir today at Red Rocks is a great segue into, you know, some great venues that uh, the Grateful Dead have gotten to play at over the years. You know, I think Red Rocks is so popular as a venue that Polestar stopped even trying to uh, ask people what the best outdoor venue in the in the country was. And instead, they just named it the Red Rocks Award, knowing that every year Red Rocks is going to win. So, you know, now it's who, who else gets that that designation? Um, but I'd say a strong candidate for me anyway is uh, the Greek Theater in Berkeley, California. I think it's probably one of the truly great small amphitheaters in America, um, not just because it's in a really cool town with a really cool vibe, but also because when you sit at the top of that place, if you're you know, at a show that's right around sunset, you get to watch the, uh, the sunset over the Pacific Ocean and over the, uh, the high rises and skyscrapers of San Francisco. So it's just a unique experience. It's a, a good place to watch the world melt if, uh, if, if you're taking the right fun things. So, um, you know, Larry, I know you've been there a handful of times. You and I discussed a little bit before, but, you know, what is it about the Greek that you absolutely love before we start talking about, you know, the Grateful Dead playing there? Well, first of all, it's like you say, it's the location. I mean, Berkeley, California is just kind of a hip, cool place to be anyway. So that's always a lot of fun. It's on a campus where the attitude is a little more relaxed, you might say, than in other places. And you know when you go there, you're just going to have a good time. The people who show up are always, uh, you know, there for the music and, and the love of everything else. But from a location, 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 you know, it's hard to beat. It's like what makes Red Rock special. You have to be there and you have to see, be able to look out over the stage and see the clock tower on the campus and then the whole town and then the bay and then the San Francisco skyline. And if you're high enough up on the hill, uh, you know, then absolutely the Pacific Ocean out over that and the sunset. And it's it's pretty magical, you know, and if you've got the right music playing for you at the right time, it can really be a great thing. And um I, uh, every time we've, uh, I, I was lucky enough to be at the Greek theater twice in 1985. And we'll talk about those shows in a second. And then in 1989, I was there as well. And, um, I could go out there anytime. And unfortunately, you know, the, the dead got too big to play in the Greek theater, but it really was, and, and is, uh, just a tremendous venue. Yeah. So I never got to see the Grateful Dead play there. I've seen a handful of other, uh, groups play there. And I'll, I'll tell you one of the great things to me about that venue is that if you walk into the show a little bit late, you can actually walk through the Berkeley campus, and uh, which is just a beautiful campus by itself, just really, really picturesque. But actually be close enough that you can start hearing the show from you know a few hundred yards away while you're still walking through the quad. And you're like, oh, wait, the Grateful Dead's playing over there. Or, you know, another band's playing over there. And there's something really unique that I can't think of too many other college campuses that have a, um, uh, an amphitheater right in the middle or the center of campus that kind of permeates the music out of the venue. And, and for me, the other thing about it is just the way the, uh, the spacing is done on the stairs. Like if you're you know, at a show where it's a, a dance show, uh, there is plenty of room to groove at that place. And, uh, and that's rare. I mean, most of the time when you're in you know, a shed or when you're in an indoor venue, you basically can fold up the chair that's attached to the floor. And that's the, you know, all the space you have is those 12 inches. But with the Greek, you actually have a fair amount of sort of um, space, which you know really similar to Red Rocks in that respect, that you have you know, four feet or so that you can actually you know, set down a, a small blanket or other things to kind of just scope out and, you know, take your zone. And that's another part that I just love about that venue. And then I'll top it off with the sound quality. There isn't a bad seat in that house. And I think the Greek, you know, only holds, you know, right around 10,000 people, maybe a little bit less. 
So there's no place in that place where, you know, you need repeaters on the floor or anything like that. It's just, you know, basically the, the PA that they're flying from the stage is all you need just to have a really, really crisp sound throughout that venue. Yeah, I think you're right. I, you know, the, the pit down in front is a great place too. You know, it's just slightly sloped enough that you can stand down there and get a good view of what's going on. Ringing the, the, the floor, they got those big stone chairs that were part of the original construction that uh, I know the shorter deadheads like to gravitate to so they can pop up on those. And they got the hill at the top that's not unlike your standard outdoor shed that uh, for, for people who get a little too intense down in the bowl uh, have a place to go and uh, and hang out. Um but it's no secret, Rob, that uh, the, the Dead loved uh, the Greek theater. They played there 29 times uh, as far back as 1967 and then all the way up until 1989. Um, and although they played many, many good shows there, I think it would be hard to find a three-show run uh, that can compare to what they did on June 14th, 15th, and 16th in 1985 uh, on their 20th anniversary, both in terms of uh, the, the, the quality of the music they put out but just as importantly, the uniqueness of the set lists and uh, some of the special tunes that they broke out, some of the circumstances that happened that they really hadn't counted on uh, that led to some unique moments. Uh, and I know you and I were talking about some of them, um, uh, you know, and, and you have to start off right away with, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the first night, they were pumping uh, the Beatles Sgt. Peppers in there for the 20 years ago today effect. And, you know, everybody who was still stranded outside in the quad came barreling in to make sure because, you know, who knew what was going to happen? And then they launched into Dancing in the Streets, which, quite frankly, uh, up till that time, I had never heard. And it was a nice throwback and a great way to get started. But, um, you know, you and I mentioned earlier, clearly the highlight of that first set was uh, right after I think they played Hell in a Bucket midway through, they lost power for about 45 minutes. And, you know, we were all out there in the crowd trying to figure out what was going on. Never seen anything like it. We knew the set wasn't over and there was some technical problem, but they couldn't quite work it out. About an hour or so later, they come back on and they start playing and they break right into Derek and the Dominoes Keep On Growing, uh, which was the first of many great breakouts that weekend and really just took that first night immediately uh, pretty much right off the charts. Yeah, I think the thing that's really cool about that is, you know, at the time, Phil was barely singing at all. It was rare to see Phil, you know, sing anything. He had a couple duets we've talked about. You know, he's doing Give Me Some Lovin', which I think he did during that run as well. But to, to come out with Keep On Growing and, and have that as a, a Phil duet, I think, caught everyone off guard. And the other thing I love about that is if, if you look at Dead Bass today, uh, that second part of the first set is actually listed as its own set because of that 45-minute break where it's listed as you know, set 1.5 instead of you know, the second half of the first set. So it's really cool that you almost got like two mini first sets and then just a monster of a second set that came out. And you know, I think you and I have discussed this, Larry. It's one of the only times I can think of, especially like in the 80s or 90s, uh, where the Grateful Dead opened a second set with the Morning Dew, which is just um, a really, really unique way to open the second set. And I, th I think we have a, a tiny clip of that because the sound reaction says it all, uh, or the crowd reaction says it all when they actually you know break into it. So maybe we'll pay, play a quick, quick clip of that Morning Dew intro. definitely tell how fired up everyone in the crowd is from listening to that it's uh it's a pretty hot way to open the second set but that wasn't even like the biggest highlight i think of the run i mean there's a in the second night uh you got an even bigger surprise huh well uh, yes but 
not to be outdone in the first set of the first night. Don't forget they played Stagger Lee, which was a breakout for them for the first time in about four years. Uh, and so that was a great one to, for them to pull out and play. Yeah. And then, you know, and then they, something I had never seen, they closed out the set with let it grow into deal instead of just closing it out with one or the other. So, you know, to me, that was, uh, uh, it was just an amazing night. Uh, they came out of the space to do truck and smokestack breakout comes a time sugar magnolia. Uh, and then, of course, you and I laughed about the fact that after this absolutely amazing night of music, they came <laughs> out to do day job. <laughs> right. They did a day job encore, which I just, yeah. you know, you always made me wonder, what is Jerry thinking up there? But you know what? It, it, as I told you, we were all having such a great time that uh, the day job was just wonderful. Nobody cared. And uh, as you were pointing out before, once the show was over, we had all uh, benefited from some special products that a friend of ours from Arizona had brought along. And uh, we were we were well up for the night and spent a lot of time, about 10 of us, marching up and down Telegraph Road, arm in arm, just like this group of people just going to see what was happening. And uh, it was a lot of fun. We, we, we had a great time. It was a great place to be. Uh, we were all set for the next night and came back for, for night two, which uh, quite frankly was as equally a, a good night, a little more um, pedestrian, you might say almost, although I hate to say that in terms of song selection, uh, but that we did get that Give Me Some Lovin' in the second set that you mentioned that uh, Phil just had been going wild on. And, and um, She Belongs to Me down the set. And She Belongs to Me. Well, actually, uh, it was unclear to us whether it was the end of the second set or whether they had taken it as an encore. And, it, and we were thinking, if this is the encore, will there be an encore? But the She Belongs to Me was awesome. And it was one of those songs that I, I have to confess, I did not know what it was at the time that they played it. Um but it took me deep into a Dylan dive afterwards, yeah. you know, to go find this song and and other Dylan tunes as they played them along the way and really gave me a, a great appreciation. But Jerry did a, just a tremendous job on She Belongs to Me, really killed it. And uh, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful cover. And, and then uh, it came back with U.S. Blues, uh, a little more traditional to end it all. And that was fun, too. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, if I think about 1985 and why 85 is such a special time is, you had some uh, some Jerry ballads that you didn't play too often in other eras, and I think "Comes a Time" and "She Belongs to Me" are two that kind of stand out that are really '85 esque that you didn't get in a, a lot of other years. And I don't think they I don't think they played uh, "She Belongs to Me" in any year but '85, and if they did, it was only just a little bit either in '84 or '86, but then it was shelved. So of all the of all the Dylan songs to break out, you know that one had a very quick lifespan. I think that was probably replaced briefly with "Believe It or Not" as a, as kind of Jerry's like ballad that was away from, you know, the standards of Stella Blue and Warfrat and Morning Dew. So it's, uh, you know, a really, really fun song selection that just kind of popped up in a moment in time, and I think you were lucky enough to see uh, see a few of them. I saw a couple Comes of Times I never got to see as She Belongs to Me. Yeah, no, the, 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 the Comes of Time the first night was beautiful. The She Belongs to Me was great. And and our joke on She Belongs to Me was there was just too many lyrics for Jerry to remember, and so, you know, he could only, he could only keep it alive for so long, and then... It just wasn't going to work for him anymore. But, uh, you know, if, if only he had played in the era with, you know, the uh, the teleprompters that they all use, he, he could have played anything, you know, right? It would have never been a prompt. That's the reason they were able to bring another Dylan ballad back in Visions of Johanna, is that, you know, Jerry actually got to look at the teleprompter and read Visions. But, uh, right. you know, which I, it's a song that I don't think he would have played, but for the fact that he had a teleprompter to make him remember all the lyrics. Right, which is another, like, She Belongs to Me, just another beautiful, beautiful ballad. And yes, you know, when he when he's on it and his voice cracks at the right moment, it's it's great. But uh, the first two nights, as great as they were, Rob, I, I felt ultimately just were a prelude 
for the third night, which for me at the time, you know, probably put me somewhere, you know, in the 30 to 40 shows scene category. Um, and I had seen great shows, but, you know, nothing that I had seen up to that point really prepared me for that, that third night. And wow. again, our, our friend from uh, Arizona had brought along the right stuff. And from the opening notes of Midnight Hour, you know, it just took off. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, it just, uh, again, supports the adage of never miss a Sunday show. When there's a three-night run and it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and, and you think, you know, Friday, Saturday is all you need to see and that you're going to go home on Sunday, bad idea always. Never miss that Sunday. Always, always. You're absolutely right. A midnight hour into Bertha, you know, the, one of the best opener combinations you could get. Um, you know, the rest of the first set was very strong. A Mississippi half-step literally is the second-to-last song of the set. But the second set, you know, was, was the difference maker for me. It was a, a scarlet fire that if you can find it on archives.org or wherever you can find it and listen to it, you really have to because it, it's, it's played with an energy and Jerry was... He was dancing and he was singing and smiling, just having a great old time. It being Sunday, they had to throw in a Samson and Delilah. And then they, they caught everybody off guard with the first cryptical, I think uh, you and I were talking about, since 1972. Yeah, the first um, one, 791 shows, which is a huge, huge break. Yep, it is. And, you know, for a uh, 20th anniversary show, it was, a, it was a great thing for them to break out. And, and it was wonderful, you know. Uh, it was one of those things that, you know, you, you listen to when you're listening, um, uh, you know, to uh, Anthem of the Sun or Oxamox or uh, I forget which, uh, Anthem of the Sun it's on, isn't it? And uh, you hear the entire suite and, you know, but in, in, in concert, we're just only used to obviously hearing the other one. But the minute they played that first note, the entire crowd, you know, was, was right on board. Everybody knew where he was going with it. And, and it was fantastic. Uh, uh, then they closed with a love light, you know, uh, great. And then a, a, a wonderful broke down. And it, it just was a, it was a great, great, great uh, run of three shows. The fact that it was at the Greek theater uh, made it that much better. Um, and it's hard for me to believe it was 36 years ago. I, I, I still actually uh, believe it or not, our, our good friend of the show, Andy Greenberg, who's been on a number of times was at those shows with me. Um, and she made these t-shirts for us. They're bowling shirts. And on the back, it says, set up like a bowling pin. And then on the front, it has all of our names. And these were our team T-shirts that we all wore that third night at the Greek theater. So I, I still have mine lying around. I, I like to think that I can still put it on and it fits me just fine, if not maybe a little more snugly now. That's so funny because I always remember like from those shows, the uh, the T-shirt that everyone came away with was the I peaked at the Greek with the uh, the bears flying up with the helium balloons. Um, that obviously had the uh, the double entendre connotation on on those, and that was I had the shirt. That too. Yeah, that was the shirt that everyone you know came home with from that from that run. Yep, I had that shirt too, and it, and it was we all did two nights of the three night run. Man, this guy from Arizona, who unfortunately after, later on wound up spending a little bit of time in federal prison only because he didn't have an attorney as good as Matt Abel <laughs> or Larry Mishkin. No, I don't know about that, but for uh, for uh, for two of those three nights, boy, we were we were we were peeking at the Greek as, as well as you could, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a great place, great memories, um, you know. And like I say, hard to believe it's been 36 years, but you know, 36 years of happy memories, so I can't complain. I keep waiting for uh, uh, Dave to throw one or two or all three of those out, either as a box set or as a uh, as a Dave's pick. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed to see what he does down the road. Yeah, I mean that that was a. Uh... They also had the other T-shirt at the time, the uh, the soldier one, the twenty years so far, which I think came out that that same time, which people were popping at the um, at the Frost Amphitheater in Stanford and the Greek Theater in, in Berkeley. And the other thing I'll say about the Greek that that run is that they actually played Berkeley earlier in the year. They played Berkeley at the Berkeley Community Theater in March, 
So to have six shows in Berkeley, I mean, it's like now you can't even imagine having a, you know a concert or a band that big play Berkeley. It's usually, you know, kind of the uh, the mid tier you know bands that haven't quite reached the uh, the status of of you know the the superstar yet. But to to do six nights there, and still on top of that, play the Henry Kaiser in Oakland, another I think six times that year. There was a lot of love for the East Bay that year. Hey, if you lived in the right place at the right time, you can see a lot of dead just with a bark token, right? That's all it took. Right, it can get you anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, between San Francisco and the, and Oakland and Berkeley, you know, you're getting a ton of shows. So, you know, Matt, we feel we, we feel bad for. Uh, well, man, I never got to see Jerry. I feel left out here, but I did see a show in Detroit at the State Theater, uh, now called the Fillmore Detroit, about I don't know, it's somewhere four or five years ago, and uh, I don't recall a whole lot about the show. We might have been you know, indulging in a bunch of stuff before that happened. And I, I did have a hell of a great time with uh, some cannabis growers who were in town, and they took me, actually. I hadn't planned it. I just ended up there, which is awesome. Um, and it's a beautiful theater, and uh, we were in a box up on the side, and uh, there's, you know, full bars there and everything, and I think somebody might have been smoking in the theater. Oh, you know, come on. Right? And, uh, anyway, yeah, so that was, uh, what was the band then? Further or uh, Dead Again? One or? of them. Yeah. I, dead Again or Dead and uh, The Dead. For, uh, oh, Dead and Company. It might have been Dead and Co., yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, been dead I, too. I did get to see Jerry in your hood a few times at the Pond Knob Music Center in 1991, and then I also got the uh, the Palace of Auburn Hills uh, a few shows in '92, and I want to say again in '94, but definitely in '92 where they ended a uh, spring tour wow. there. So uh, the, the only time I really have ever spent in Detroit is thanks to the Grateful Dead um, coming into uh, coming go. to your area in the early '90s. Well, the Palace has been demolished. Yep. That just happened, and uh, Pine Knob is now called DTE Energy Detroit Edison. Um, of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. But the deadheads will always just be Pine Knob, so you know they, they can change the name. But And I don't know if Pine Knob is going to have a full uh, round of concerts this summer or not. I know there will be a few, and um, they occasionally have one down at Comerica Park or Ford Field or the new Little Caesars Arena, where I went to the first show there just because it was the first show. Well, God damn it, if it wasn't Kid Rock. You know? <laughs> it is Detroit, man. It's either him or Eminem. Yeah, he had a big blow-up inflatable fist that came out and basically flipped off the crowd, mm -hmm. said he was running for the U.S. Senate, <laughs> a bunch of stupid shit. But um, anyway, I took Amy just because I thought that we should go to the first show there, whatever it was, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. We do have a great light show on the ceiling, so when we get a good band in there. Nice. Well, Matt, thank you so much. Uh, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Um, you know, there's plenty of stuff we could easily keep talking about, so somewhere down the line we're going to have to have you back to talk about all the stuff we didn't get to today. Um, lots of good stories and experiences that you've had. Uh, we've yet to talk about the time you and I spent at the normal conference out in Colorado together. So, you know. Key West, Larry. Key West in December. Is that, the, is that the call? That's the next one, yeah. I, although oh. I'd go to Aspen again in a heartbeat. Absolutely. One last thing, Matt. Uh, what's the best way for our listeners to get a hold of you if they are so inclined? 
Well, my law firm is at CannabisCouncil.com. CannabisCouncil.com. Yeah, just look it up. Thanks for having me. It's so great to see the three of you together again. As Robert reminded me, that was, we all did, I met you all at the same time. So that's pretty cool. And Robert, say hi to my friends Warren and Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. Or if you speak to them first, the same. And, and, and I'll say this with all sincerity, Matt. Uh, as we talk about who our guests are coming up and we kind of go through our, our, you know, let's prepare for the show. When your name came across, all of us were like, oh, Matt Abel's going to be on. That's awesome. And so I don't think we've ever had that much excitement collectively around a guest that's come on. Uh, just based on you know, all of us having a tremendous amount of respect for your career and you as a person, just uh, you know, we, we were really just stoked that you're coming on, deadhead or not. Um, we just wanted you to, uh, to be a part of this. So thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you, man. Well, let me know if you guys come to a show in my neck of the woods. I'll go with you. Beautiful. Perfect. Perfect. Would love that. Would love that. And as we uh, exit, um, once again, I will just very quickly uh, give a quick shout-out to uh, Rob, who once again, just before today's episode, uh, turned me on to yet another amazing clip uh, that you have to see to believe. Uh, June 9th, 1977, uh, Winterland, uh, the Grateful Dead do a help on the way, Slipknot Franklin's Tower, the entire suite is amazing. Rob had me focused on the Franklins, but the clip I found started from the beginning, so I just listened to the whole thing. Uh, but the Franklins is amazing, and Jerry's up there, and even though you can't see him, you can just imagine the smile on his face uh, as he rips into it and uh, is just having a great, great time. So uh, June 9th, 77, Franklin's Tower, Winterland. Rob, thank you again for that one. I'll, I'll say it's a 17-minute long, 17-minute, 30-second Franklin's Tower. And I'd say from the 12-minute mark on, the last five and a half minutes of that Franklin's, I will put against any Franklin's out there in just sheer enthusiasm that's coming off that stage. So, you know, there, there's a, a flub of the lyrics going into the uh, listen to the music yes. play. But other than yeah, that, yeah. you know, it's a pretty flawless Franklin's. And, uh, and, and if everyone knows their Franklin's, they know in 77, it, it kind of has the, uh, the build up after the last verse. And then there's a really nice quiet down until they come back into the roll away the dues again. And then they finish it off. But that, that period from about 12 minutes until about the 18 minute mark is just, or excuse me, about the 16 minute mark is just straight fire. It's just, so I'm glad you listened to it, Larry. No, I listen. I I know when you when you make a recommendation, I'm smart enough to follow through, so you don't have to tell me twice. Um, but uh, again, Rob, great show today. Thank you very much. Thanks to Matt. Thanks to Jim. I hope he's having a great time at Red Rocks, and we'll look forward to his report on Bob Weir and Wolf Brothers uh, on next next week's show. Uh, otherwise, for our listeners, we will look forward to hearing you again next week. To our listeners on Clubhouse, thanks for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it, and uh, everyone have a great week. Stay safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. 
as the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.